All right, I guess we can start with um, <clears throat> Thank you for coming. This is the, uh, the panel on the Lovecraft influence on Dean Koontz. Um, <laughs> or uh, that Canadian writer, Stephen King? Yeah. I mean, Maine's Canada. Yeah, point. basically. Um, we, we annexed it. Not too long ago. I'm S.J. Bagley, and I'm sorry to say I'm your moderator. Um, we're going to start with John and introduce ourselves as we go down. Hi, I'm John Foster. I'm a horror writer. I'm Gemma Files, uh, probably best known for uh, my novel experimental film. Um, and thank you. <laughs> I've been writing for 30 years and I'm still here. My name is Victor Laval. Um, I write novels, short stories, uh, and comic books. I'm Les Klinger. I write a lot of footnotes. Uh, full disclosure, probably starting in a few months on the annotated edition of The Stand. Uh, I'd like everybody on this panel to uh, plug you know, Leslie's Annotated Watchmen, if you're a fan of Watchmen. It's, it's an amazing book. It really opened up the book seeing it in black and white. At first, I was kind of bummed out because it was black and white, but I felt like I could see more what the artists were doing. What he does with that book is fantastic. And you could afford it because it was black and white. Hi, I'm Paul Tremblay, author of Handful of Ghosts and The Cabin at the End of the World. I always have Kevin the Woods, like everyone else does when it's left to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my most recent book is called Growing Things and Other Stories, and Stephen King has been very, very good to me. So the idea basically was to focus mostly on the Lovecraft influence on Stephen King, and that is still going to be a big part of this, but I also do want to branch off into King's influence on contemporary weird fiction, too. Um, but I'm, I'm going to start with Les. So you're, you're, you're working on an annotated version of The Stand. Just started. So. Um, Ten years. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you see as, as the core influence of Lovecraft on King's work, and do you see that reflected in The Stand at all? Um, that's an interesting question. No, is what I would say. I think that the influences on the stand are much more um, sort of apocalyptic literature, historical apocalyptic literature. Um, there certainly was plenty of apocalypse before uh, the stand, but Lovecraft never really, you know, played with that idea. So. Um. Sorry. Uh, you disagree. A little bit. Um, the Walking Dude has always reminded me slightly of Neanderthalta. Well, I mean, it, since we know nothing about Neanderthalta, it's well, easy to in, say. In, I that, suppose, in so. that he ushers in a era of cha apocalyptic change, uh, during which the world could be lost to maybe not gigantic monsters, but you know, darkness. And, uh, and I think I don't you know. know. So, let's start this argument. Yeah, I'm sort of. Let's. So I don't think the stand is an example of his Lovecraft influence. I mean, maybe it is, but to me, it reads more like a, almost like a you know American Christian, American version of Christianity sort of fable. I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely. That's you know, to me, that's more the heavy influence on. You know, what's oh no, I absolutely agree that it's not as Lovecraftian, same ritual, but not revival or desperation. But, you know, that you could see some of it in there. I, I think you, you bring up a, a good point with The Walking Dude and, and the way 
versions of like that and the character of Randall Flagg appear in so many works in kind of like the similar <clears throat> sinister player of games where you never really understand the full identity in the same way that Lovecraft and, and his vast swath of imitators use the idea of uh, an mm. Um Okay, well, Jenna, you just brought up Revival. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. Um, revival is, to me, one of his most definitively Lovecraftian visions, um, not least for the place where it leaves you <laughs> at the end, where it's sort of like, well, I'm alive now, but <laughs> uh, I've, I've seen the face of uh, the true face of the universe, and it sucks real hard. Um, and we have a tiny flicker of brief light uh, against an immeasurable darkness. Um, and, you know, so, uh, and also the weird science as aspect as well, um, which seems, um, it's, it's not quite Herbert Westian, but at the same time, it's sort of like a Herbert West gospel, you know, mashup. It's, it's like that sweet spot between Lovecraft and Mackin. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it's, it's Frankenstein. I mean, I'm, I, I was so excited. I was working, I think I had just finished the annotated Frankenstein, and I'm reading this wonderful book, Revival, and up until the sort of the last chapter, I'm saying to myself, this is really an interesting retake of Frankenstein, similar to Victor Laval's Destroyer, mm -hmm. in a certain way. Uh, and then, and there's even a character named Victor. Yeah. Like, yeah. yes, this yeah. is, oh, I got it. I, I see where he's going. And then there's that chapter where all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute. There are elder gods here. Yeah. <laughs> Horrifying elder gods. Uh, Godess, I guess, you know, but yeah. Um, just, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I, no, that's I, just, I, I think it's almost being such a large body of work that it's almost hard to pick anything that's the most definitive, because I would argue, um, if we can open up to short stories, the end. Yes. Um, which literally finishes with some sort of being coming through named Thun's CH. U-S-C-T-H-U-N. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, what are, here, here is my argument. My argument is that King says, to some degree, that his um, affinity for horror and his interest in horror began with reading books that his dad left behind, many of which were Lovecraft. And you can see the thumbprints of Lovecraft all through his mythos. Um, up to and including the, you know, there are other worlds than these, um, you know, kind of mythology of, uh, of the Gunslinger books, um, and up to including uh, the, uh, the recent, um, sorry, uh, the recent miniseries, um, Castle Rock, where again, we see the idea of thin places through which you can look to other worlds, but outside those other worlds always is darkness. It's always looming darkness, unknowable, awful things um, that come through and replicate. You know, my favorite of which, of course, is talk in desperation, but I'm just real happy with the, uh, the language of the unformed, I guess. It's, it's interesting because I, I, I think as big an influence on King's work as Lovecraft is, an even bigger one is his sort of gentle liberal Christianity. Yeah. Um, Victor, do you think he's able to reconcile those? Uh, well, all I was thinking was, uh, I mean, the 
Uh, like he, he has this notion that, that humanity itself is an inherent good, which is it's so contrary to Lovecraft. <laughs> well, I, I do. Th- I mean, I do think it's interesting to think about the. Um, did I say that? Uh, to, just to think about the almost like the the, the shift over time uh, of the Lovecraftian in King and uh, with full disclosure like I have not read Revival yet so I'm not all the way caught up but just feeling like I, I just would go back to even like a childhood love like the very Lovecraftian The Mist of yeah. course right yeah. um, but I feel like uh, what's interesting about say that as an example is the way that the version he published strikes me as him going up to the precipice of Lovecraftian and then refusing it yeah. right that last bit of like the, the last the second word sounds like hope mm-hmm. is as anti Lovecraftian as you could get but then the movie I think is a Lovecraftian the, the movie says I'm gonna go over the abyss right because the, the movie is like you know fuck you yes yeah well, the movie is like but what, what I will point out is that when the movie came out um, you know, and King and Darabont have had a, a long-standing relationship, but basically King was like, you know, people were like, are you offended by the ending? And King was like, no, I think that was the right ending, and I fucked up. Yes. Well, yeah. well King is wrong on that part, because the ending of that movie you know, fills me with rage. But, <laughs> but what, 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 what's, what's, what's interesting is that the, the way the novella actually ends, it's on a note of hope for them, but not for us, because we know they can't make it. They don't have enough gas. They've only got a couple of bullets. They're not going to make it from Maine to Connecticut. They're just not going to. But it ends with us feeling that they feel hope, and that's what matters. True. And, but and also, it's a Stephen King novel of that era, so they might make it. <coughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, they'll find a pocket. Well, and, I think, I think uh, they'll find a... In the novella, we get the idea that they've got a chance to make it. Yes. yes. And that's, they, they hear a voice. They hear a voice in the novel. Yeah. And, 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 and I think, ironically enough, I think that's one of the, one of the works that... that approaches most like his like I said relatively gentle Christian yes. view of, yes. of, of the human as ultimate goodness which is great because the the villain of the novella is a is a lunatic born again Christian yes well, yeah well, say just because there's potential hope at the end you know, I would maybe argue that there isn't very much given the amount of mileage between well, and they're going to Connecticut like that's a good place to go in general of course I, I, it is my understanding from, from reading him that he does not posit that humanity is an essentially good function, but that there is, and this is very different from what we have, an oppositional force to sort of that malignant or indifferent but, universe. I, 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 it's, it's outside of, it's not necessarily related to humanity, although we can access it. I, I would say he's not optimistic about humanity, but he's very optimistic about the human being. Yeah, and I would also say, I would also point out that he himself has said that he is very skeptical of religion. Right. He thinks that organized religion is not a good. Sure. No, I mean, I, I think it's very in the mist in the novella itself. I mean, I mean, humanity breaks down under the pressure of this, you know, malevolent universe outside of us. I mean, I don't think it's a very optimistic view of, of humanity within that novella. I mean, obviously, other works there are. And, but I think you get both of that. You get sort of the Lovecraftian thing that's going on outside of the grocery store. But, you know, right. Those human, you know, most of those people are monsters in that or monstrous, I should say, in that, in that grocery store. And are more a direct threat to the people inside than anything outside. And, and what I think is fascinating about the way he portrays the organization, like the, that, that immediacy of the organization of religion, actually kind of harken back to Lovecraft's absolute hatred of organized religion. Like, there, I think it echoes that as well. Mm. 
There's a, um, I, I don't know if you've seen the news article that he's written a third ending now for The Stand that will be for the TV series uh, that's going to be sometime in next year. Um, and again, I think it, it the, the expanded edition of the novel has him telling more of sort of whether humans can live on afterwards, and this is going to be even more of that, I think, because he feels like there's a little more in the story, but it's the same thing. It's, it's still ultimately ambiguous about whether humans are gonna make it. But it's always ambiguous about whether humans are gonna make it. I mean, you know, it, that sounds like an easy thing to say, but the fact is that um, I think that even in the stand, and I've heard a lot of young, I've heard a lot of young people, you know, object to the fact that the hand of God comes down and literally does shit at the end of the I mean, I'm a thousand years old when I heard that. So. No, no, and I, I understand that, but the, but the fact is that the people in the stand, even somebody like Stu, who's about as salt of the earth as you can get, um, all of them find the walking dude just as creepy as Mother Abigail in certain ways. You know, Mother Abigail harkens forward to the kid in desperation who keeps going, God is cruel, God is cruel. You know, it's like, I've sold my soul to God, you know, to get my friend out of a coma, and so I just have to accept that God is cruel. And also, I, I think there's something Lovecrafting about that ending, because the idea of the hand of God coming down and, and actually smiting people oh, hell is just that. such a fucking cosmic horror. Yeah. That's just a nightmare. But it also, I think the other thing that it does is, I mean, if the hand of God could come down and do it then, why couldn't it have done it earlier? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Right? Like, uh, all those so. people, all those people died. You know, a little, course, a, a little girl falling down he, into a well and starting. So, so yeah. how does the hand smite them by setting off one of human? Yeah. So, so, so I, I don't think he meant it for 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 it to be this way. But God in the stand then is either. I, I was going to say either indifferent or malevolent, but no, because he is not indifferent. Therefore, he is clearly malevolent. I, I he set up a nuclear bomb killing everybody in the area, not just the quote-unquote evil people. I, he's definitely Old Testament. Yeah, that's pretty fucking Yeah, weird. no, no, he's definitely Old Testament. And also, you know, again, you have to kind of... There, there is this sort of thing that I've noticed a lot in the community where it's like, if you have people of faith in a narrative, then you must be a person of faith. You, you must believe what those people believe, and that, which seems very weird to me generally, because I've written a lot of people who believe shit that I don't believe. Um, but secondarily, you know, if you if you believe in if you believe in a universe where God invented people and gave them free will, then that always factors in. It's like God going, "Okay, I hope you don't fuck up." Well, I hope you don't fuck up more. Oh my God, I hope you don't, oh me, I, I hope you don't fuck up even more, you know, but you have free will and I have to kind of let you do what you're going to do because that's the point. The point is that you get to make your own fucking mistakes. Isn't the hand of God at the end though? Azathoth? So what? So it's kind of like Azathoth in a way. Well, I was going to say it's. <laughs> I, I, see, see, I thought it was so filled with intent that the, the destruction. That seems so Christian to me, mm -hmm. as opposed to 
uh, a Lovecraftian entity, which would sort of accidentally roll over and sleep and just destroy us all. Right. Well, I mean, we also have a tendency to, to, to put a Christian influence and a Lovecraftian influence very far apart while ignoring the fact that they're, you know, Lovecraft used bits of Christian mythology in his work. Yeah, exactly. In the, the, uh, the Dunwich Horror, you know, so, somebody uses a cross yeah. to try and save off it, which actually is really echoed strongly, I think, in um, Sam's Lot. Yes, absolutely. Dunwich Horror, um, you know, is kind of like the Hammer movie of the, of the Lovecraft verse. Yeah. You know? I, think, I think, in thinking about your question about the stand and the Lovecraftian influence, I think the thing that King takes away most from Lovecraft is what I, I think many contemporary writers have. Uh, Paul's brilliant camping at the end of the woods. Uh, is a perfect, uh, which is Lovecraft's idea of how do you do this stuff. His idea that, as, as I always paraphrase it, that you have to write something that's 99% realistic with a 1% thread of the horror supernatural element in there. Paul's is down about a tenth of a percent, but, uh, but it really works when you have this utterly realistic setting. There is nothing in the stand that's unrealistic, yeah. except maybe that one little thread of horror of who are these people getting these dreams. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's a fun juxtaposition with Lovecraft, who like, you know, wrote essays about no horror story has to be weird from like essentially like syllable one. There has to yeah. be this. Yes, and of course... Call a Clue also has people getting messages yes. with dreams. There you go. See, I'm yeah. to, okay, these are all going to be footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's everywhere. It's all the way. It goes all the way to the top. And, um, and I, I, th I think King has also made extensive use of the notion that Lovecraft really did with, where um, when you have contact with the ineffable, it, it changes you completely. Yes. Um, and in Lovecraft's work, it was always, you know, it, you become the gibbering madman or whatever. Um, and, and, and King does uncomfortably lean into that a lot, but not always. And I think it's interesting that, that he also, um, well, in It, for example, which is in some ways one of his most Lovecraftian works, worst ending he ever wrote, by the way, worst fucking ending he ever wrote. Um, <laughs> but you have characters as children who contact the ineffable. And they're, they're, they're fundamentally changed, but they're not damaged in the way, in, in the way that Lovecraft's characters are. Um, Except for the one guy who, yeah. uh, what's his name? I'm forgetting, the one who kills himself. Stan Yuris. Stan. Yeah. Stan. He's the only one who seems broken by the... Yeah. Right. But, but I, I don't just mean contact with it, but Sorry, also with, 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 the, with, with the turtle. Yeah. The, yes. which, yeah, yeah. Which, which one can argue that that helped them to stay... Uh, if, if sanity is to have meaning in this context, that helped them to stay sane, I think, and actually helped them to leave the town mm -hmm. yeah. and continue. Um, to get out say, of the orbit of the deadlights. So yep. Salem's Lot, although clearly has major elements of Dracula in it, also has... The Lovecraftian thing of the normal, you know, it's a normal world, and then these things start showing up that are just inexplicable there. Yeah, and, and yet they've always existed in the world. Yes. We just didn't know about them. And, and, and Barlow could be a Lovecraftian entity in anything other than aesthetics. Yep. I mean, if you just made him like, you know, like, a, like, you know, like a squid face. Yeah, tentacles. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm walking out so far <laughs> Barlow seems yeah. a pretty classic event. Barlow, Barlow is classic. 
classically vampiric and you know and and moment and there are moments like for example um, the uh, the sacrifice in the woods where he he seems very I, again it's a very hammer horror kind of you know thing because it's it's like he's appealing to Satan. Um, he seems very satanically identified, um, a practitioner of black magic, if not Satan himself. Yeah, off with his left hand. Yeah, yeah, exactly, but, which but, I love. I, and, I, love and, that and I agree, I mean, what John just said, though, I, I kind of agree. Like, I feel myself, like, rejecting, you know, some of this just being the confederate uh, contrarian, but, like, I don't feel like I want to give Lovecraft credit for every sort of horror concept that's no, out there. I mean, it, there can be, like, and, you know, some of the things we're talking about, can have existed without Lovecraft. I mean, I think, you know, King just as much, yeah. if not more so, is you know inspired by Matheson and you know sort of other. Oh, Matheson and Block, I think, are his two, his two biggest ones. You know, and obviously there's a connection between Block and Lovecraft, but yeah. Well, no, I'm, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that King like like if you pair King back, all you find is Lovecraft. I'm saying that there's a vein of Lovecraft that runs through, yeah. through King. But I do think it's also worth noting. Um, I mean, if if one of the central ideas of Lovecraft is, for, or at least some of Lovecraft, much of Lovecraft, is that this is all actually science. This is not magic. And that I don't think that part is very much, like I don't feel like a king, no. I feel like king is all about magic. Yeah, I agree. Right? I agree. And Lovecraft, the, at the heart of it, was very much about like there is no magic. Yeah. Body jumping, all this kind of stuff. There's an explanation for it. We're just not ready to understand it yet. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Although it is a bit like, you know, uh, black magic is indistinguishable for black well, science. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. But I, but I think that's, a, that's one way that King, I think, falls under many other influences. No, I agree. Uh, um, and that's not the thing that he and Straub share in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. The idea that at a certain <coughs> point, there is stuff that you can, that you will never understand because it verges on the inevitable. Um, it could be bad ineffable, could be good ineffable, could be just ineffable and it will fuck you up. And I, I, think, I think Lovecraft, for Lovecraft the idea that the universe is ultimately something we can never understand is, is just ter was terrifying to him, um, as was, you know, shellfish and black people. He was terrified of everything. But, but with, with King, that notion that the universe is something we can never understand, I think, is a source of deep optimism in his work yeah. and his life. And the badge. Yeah. Shellfish, black people, and the badge. And, the badge. Um, you know, and, and, and King obviously likes all three of those things. So, um, you know, better yet, he likes life. You yes. Know? yes. It's like he's not, he's not afraid of, you know, he, He's, he's sort of like, you know, life is great. He's not afraid of a good time. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I mean, you know. <laughs> it's like coming to my house, bring a, bring a 12 pack. Which, which, is, which isn't to say King hasn't <laughs> had his own problems with things like gender and, and race. I mean, I don't know of another writer who has leaned so much into the notion of the magical Negro. Oh, hello. And um, I, I guess we could argue that positive racism is a little bit better than negative racism. It, but it's still not good. Yes. Yeah. Um, we can pass on both. I, 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 I completely yeah. agree with you there. Um, <coughs> yeah. But I have a question. Paul, if the tanks didn't show up at the end, <laughs> uh, yeah. would you like the end of that movie better? So what, what really bothered this me... This is about, going back to yeah, the, the, the Miss movie. The Miss movie, sorry. Yeah. But what really bothered me, I just felt like they broke the rules of everything they had set up previously. Mm. 
the main thing is, you know, so the tanks rolling, and I was like, wait a minute, what happened? Did the helicopters just start blowing the mist away? Because that's sort of what it implied. Yeah. You know, and the, you know, and the woman who escapes mm-hmm. you know, yeah. from the grocery store lives is like sitting on the tank, like looking at them like, ah, I told you that part exactly. When everybody else who escapes, you know, died. I, right. I just thought the whole thing felt like a cheap, Listen, I completely understand that impulse, and indeed that is kind of how I felt the first time I saw it. Um, but again, there's, there might be something that, there might be something going on that we don't know about, and that might make sense because how would they know about it either? Mm. We assume that whatever opened up is still open. Sure, Maybe but, it's so not. Again, but even like the characters' reactions, they did all this fighting to get to this point, and like within five minutes, ah, uh, fuck it, let's shoot everybody. I mean, they did drive a little while. Yeah. If, but, you know, if, if I saw that fucking thing coming through, through the mist, I might. Well, then why didn't they do that earlier? Like, yeah, I because they like, didn't see it earlier. I thought the tanks. <laughs> the tanks made it. Uh, I think, like, uh. For those it, it doesn't work dramatically. <laughs> just all these characters totally were not what they meant. But if he had. I really think. I'm sorry to yeah, keep going about this, right, but. Yeah. Uh, but I think, like, if. To me, the tanks are the movie sort of blinking and saying, don't worry, everything's okay. Right. But if he had, if the father had done that, I would be more and then he just stepped out into the mist and just wandered into the mist and then it was just like directed yeah. by, I would, I'd just be like, what the, f- wow. I would be more okay with that. Yeah. I still think I w- wouldn't, I understand how quickly like, yeah, it yeah, yeah. the suicide so, part of it. So it, the tanks thing did make it worse. So yeah. I agree with that. See, I, see, I, see I like the idea of, you know, you know Everybody gets shot, he walks out in the mist. We just see the mist for like five, ten minutes, and it clears, and people start walking through. And then people walk. <laughs> just out for a stroll. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, t- the tanks and the helicopters. That was it really made it up. Yeah. 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 So, so, somebody's tamed a spider. Right. They're, they're leading right. along. Thank, thank you for helping me work through this. <laughs> <laughs> from, from pretty it's a movie, Paul. <laughs> from, from pretty early in, in King's work, he started making connections between a lot of his stuff. And I know a lot of people would be like, oh, Marvel Comics. And I, that's, sure, that's an influence on there, but that's part of it. I wonder how much of that goes back to that notion of, um, I'm gonna use the Duralist term, everybody, the Cthulhu mythos. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wonder if just that notion has been like a wider influence on almost the entirety of King's work. The idea of a mythology, the idea of tying everything That's together. actually a great question. Your first one ever. <laughs> <laughs> Even a stop clock and all that. Such an asshole. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I never even considered that, but I do think now that you phrase it that way, it's a definite. Look. I mean, was there somebody else after Lovecraft who like had their own horror sort of like interconnection? In, in, in horror directly, I, I in not between, not that I can think of. Think of well, Macon does. You know, I mean, his true. His Maybe horror. Horror. Sorry. Make it. Oh, so Megan. But 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 also, I I don't know if I would argue that 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 that, that was after Lovecraft or influenced by Lovecraft in that way. It's really hard to tell because I mean, they were sort of contemporaneous. To some yeah, degree. contemporaneous. But yeah, he def- he very definitely has his own mythology, and it links almost everything that he did. So. And, and 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 the thing is, like Lovecraft and King's work, that mythology, there's a lot of obfuscation to it. Like the you know Randall Flag is not the same Randall Flag in each appearance. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, but there's always a flag esque. 
Well, there's the, awesome. The Castle Rock show is really sort of bringing together all of the efforts. Yeah. Yes. Um, which is a far better show than I expected it to be. Oh, yeah. It's a good show. Oh, yeah. That, that all said, though, I mean, I think that's a great point. But again, like, you know, how much is it subconsciously uh, a Lovecraft influence or subconsciously, like, how much of it was, like, he had this, you know, vision for, you know, the, what became the Dark Tower. Like, I almost felt like, he was like, oh, I can, like, you know, sort of make a little reference here or that. I, I will never believe him about that, that he had all that planned out back then. I just... Oh, I, no, I'm sure he didn't have it planned out, but just, like, to be able to, like, oh, like, because it's still there, like, this yeah, big sure. thing, like, he, he gets to sneak it in. I mean, I don't know, because I, I almost feel like that tradition is now, like, and, and we, a we normal tend, thing for horror writers to do is, like, we all want to, like... Write, writers post-Durleth yeah. have kind of codified the, the mythos far more than Lovecraft ever meant it to be. I mean, he, he was pretty clear in his letters that, for example, like Cthulhu could be, you know, this evil entity in one story or a place perhaps in another story. I mean, his king, I mean, we're going far afield. His king read Borges. Didn't he have sort of like interconnected? I know within certain, you know, flat fiction. Yes in, the fa- yes, in the fact that Borges wrote a single work. Well, I mean, I, I, we might as well talk about Tolkien as an influence on Stephen King. I mean, I, I'm not sure. Lovecraft, I really reject the idea that Lovecraft S- me on that. wanted mythology. I don't think he had any intention of creating mythology. I've, I've argued that he has no pantheon in mind. Oh, no, you're, you're absolutely it's right. sort of a few random ideas about things and let others play with them. Tolkien, for but, example, set out to create a full universe. But, but that, that's kind of where I was going, where like, in a lot of like, the connections between a lot of King stuff, you know, if you try to map them out and codify them, they don't actually make sense. Right. I, I don't and, think I, he has a... And I, right, and I, I think that's, that, that's where that echoes back to what Lovecraft was doing with that, I think. Also, what I would say, um, you know, just to break in, uh, as I'm willing to do, um, is that, you know, we're talking about the difference between fantasy and horror, too. You know, because horror, you return to things again and again, like you're scratching an itch. You know, um, you look at your stuff and, you, and you're like, oh, why am I writing about the same shit over and over again? Well, obviously, because it means something to me. And, you know, out of that, you develop whatever you develop. Um, I, I don't understand your point. Okay. Uh, what does that got to do with whether there's a uni- coherent universe? Oh, I think okay. she was just going back to what you were saying about Tolkien, I thought. Yeah, you, you were saying just Tolkien sat down, and sat down to write a coherent <coughs> universe from the very beginning. I agree. Well, I mean, I think Stephen Which is a King, far more fantasy thing to do. I think King, if we bring it back to King, I think King, King did do that with the Dark Tower, eventually. I mean, I think... Eventually, th- yeah. But I don't <laughs> think it's, which it's all is, of his work. Which is why I think it's overall his weakest, the weakest part of his body of work. Because at the end of the day, even when he was writing those, he's still, in essence, a horror writer, and you need that sort of uncertainty for horror fiction to work. Yeah. If, if, if it doesn't have that, then it's just the world's worst hand job. <laughs> like, it's, 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 I'm sure you've had worse, John. We'll talk about that later. I'm almost there. There's, there's a lot of internet activity and just as horror work outside of the Dark Tower, but I think that's more convenience. He likes writing about Castle Rock or Derry or whatever it is yeah. in small town Maine because he can exploit it. That's his, his base point from which he's going to fuck everything up. Right. Um, but I agree. I think, I think he was trying to create a universe with the Dark Tower. Um, 
I don't know that it was as good, as successful as his, as his other work. So, so when he returns to the same place and the same characters, does that weaken the effect of it all? I don't think so. I, no, I don't think it weakens it. It's just a different kind of world building. It's a world building that's almost more hypnagogic. It's like having the same nightmare over and over again, variations of the same nightmare over and over again, and going, wow, you know, I just keep dreaming about squid and the badge. <laughs> and black people. <laughs> you know? It's like in New York. King's use of the, the small towns, I think it's, I mean, it's very Sherlock Holmes. I mean, Holmes says, you know, the evil in, in the country is far more insidious than in the city because in the country you can get away with things in isolation in the countryside. The picture in the house. Uh, yeah. So I think, and that was certainly Lovecraft's notion too, is yeah. that when you look into those isolated farms around the towns, you find really scary stuff. The so I think King just was using those idea, that, that observation, and using small towns, it's a lot scarier, and you can get away with a lot more creepy stuff in a small town than if it was all in a big city. Yeah. And he likes to draw a comparison between evil and a small evil, the banal evil that just happens, where, you know, uh, yeah. he talks about it in Salem's Lot, in fact, that Callahan has a big sort of eternal debate, because yes. he had wanted to face the, the great evil capital, evil. and he's dealing with just abusive parents and alcoholism and stuff like that. And I, I think he, he uses both really well, again, in It. And it's always kind of funny to me that you have this great, powerful, cosmic evil in It, and its whole thing is, I'm going to control this small town in Maine. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's an absolutely... the shit out of it. It's an absolutely absurd idea, but that makes it more horrifying because... The stakes for everybody in that town are huge, and the stakes for everybody in next town over, they're not even there. I don't know, it's, I think it's named the murder she wrote, fucking everyone died. <laughs> His yeah, most successful serial killer. Well, yeah, you know, part of it is just, part of it is just smart storytelling, right? We can't, we can't relate to nine million deaths. I mean, because we don't know those people. But right. when we have a small town, we can relate to the individuals who get good. The same with the stand. Yeah. The stand doesn't work if you talk about, if, if you're trying to sort of tell the story of the, whatever it is, 349 million people who die in, in the epidemic. Um, you've got to focus on the small stories. Yeah, they kid who falls down the well. That's certainly where it differs from Lovecraft, and that even if it's going to deal with some sort of psychopathic evil, some, some great thing, we're going to do it through the lens of people we've learned to care about on a very different level, and Lovecraft does not. Well, King is, yes. at his core, something that Lovecraft failed to be entirely, which is a storyteller. Because yeah. storytelling and writing are, 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 are fundamentally different things. Um, you know, the best of Lovecraft's prose far outshines the best of King's, but just sitting down and telling a story, I think, you know, King understood that more, understands? Is it, King, Stephen King's still alive, right? Yeah. All right, expect you. Um, <laughs> he appears to be. He understands just that notion and the importance of storytelling more than Lovecraft, who I think didn't really see value in that. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's about all your characters being yourself, and all, and you don't like yourself very much, and you don't like anybody else either. That's a very nice point because I was gonna, I was going to say it a different way, which is that Lovecraft didn't create a single relatable character, no. and that you you said it the other way around, exactly right, which is he, thank you. I, I almost feel like Lovecraft didn't create a single character. Just about everybody in his work, especially his narrators, are ciphers, um, with the exception, I think, of the Hound. 
um, which is still one of the gayest stories I've ever read. It's fucking fantastic. It one of his best words. Um, There's no debate there. No, um, Herbert West is also pretty gay. Yeah, yeah but... Because <laughs> I don't know why that dude's hanging around if he doesn't, to some degree, want Herbert to. I was really fond of... Uh, Do something. <laughs> What, I forgot her name, Azelhoff? Is that her name? The woman in... Um, Asana. Asana the way. Yeah. I was very fond of her. Uh, she's not really a woman, though. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in the end, yeah. Maybe that says it all. But, the, <laughs> but do you think... I mean, I think uh, you've hidden on that point about uh, relatable or unrelatable or whatever. Like, uh, I often, often am surprised by how much uh, King says he loved Lovecraft, if only because King so clearly... I can't think of very many stories where he, where he does distance himself from likable mm. human beings. Um, and so it's always been a surprise to me that Lovecraft mattered to him as much as he did. Yeah, and I th- Because I think- Lovecraft didn't concern himself with that. And I think that's one of the great challenges about reading Lovecraft is the natural um, uh, self-centeredness of human beings right. to need to find someone like us to, to therefore care about and see as a vessel. And uh, Lovecraft uh, having the sort of, I think, courage in his way to say, if I told you you don't matter, I can't then write about a person mattering, I mean, it, right? To, to look at, at horror literature, like with the analogy of like a storm, storm-tossed sea, mm. you know, King puts buoys out. Yeah. You, you, yeah. you can hook yourself with them. You, you can find some solidity there. Lovecraft did not at all. Yeah. yeah. No, well, I mean, that's, that's a beautiful Doyleist explanation the cipherhood of uh, Lovecraft. Is somebody here able to talk about specific short fiction of King? Because my feeling is that his short fiction yeah. is much more Lovecraft. Yes, yeah, oh, no, very much absolutely. Yeah, um, I, I was, you know, when you said uh, that he very rarely aligns himself with characters who are dislikable, um, uh, I was actually thinking of um, the character uh, of the journalist, the tabloid journalist who, who goes through um, not just um, the Night Flyer, but also Room 1406? 1408. Yeah. Um, and particularly in Room 1408, uh, I really feel like, well, you know, for one thing, the dude's not going to emerge from that, you know. But, uh, you know, it's like, I hate that guy. He's not a great guy. You know, he, he's acting like an ass the entire time. But what happens to him, I feel very deeply by the end of the, by the, end of the story. He, he writes scumbags so well yes. that we want to see what happens to them. Yeah, exactly. And, right. and, and it's also a very Lovecraftian story in that it is the story of a man spiraling down into madness because everything around him has suddenly become, you know, utterly unintelligible. You know, it's like, no friends, all your friends are dead. You know, it's, and, like, and it's like, what the fuck is that? I, well, that's right. I mean, it doesn't have to be yeah. likable or relatable, but yeah. you want to understand why it is what they're doing. Yes. Uh, yeah, so I, you know, contrarian, would change that Lovecraft being described as a better writer. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a little bit... I, I didn't say he was a better writer. I said that, that you know, he... he the best uh, of on a, on a, The best of his work, prose-wise, I think, is, is, is better prose-wise than the best of King's work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... I mean, it's just because... Well, I mean, this is personal on my part. I mean, but I, but I, I also think is, like, King's I, I work as a whole works better than any of Lovecraft's. Sure. No, I get what you're saying, but like, I guess I feel like, to me, a fundamental sort of flaw of Lovecraft stuff, I, mean, I, know, I realize this is very subjective to me, it's clear his ideas you know, have resonated for almost, as, you know, actually for a full century now, right? 
But yeah, the idea of those, not even that the characters are unrelatable, but they're not like real people. You're right, they're, they're just ciphers. They're just. I don't know. I mean, to me, like, when you're writing, like, I want to. I don't have to like the character. I hate that. Like, when right. someone tells me, like, oh, the character was not likable, I'm not really listening to the conversation. But there, ha there has but, to be. It can still be like I want to understand like why they're doing what they're doing. I mean, so it's right. not likability. It's it's you know a tiny piece of empathy, and maybe it's more horrific if you actually empathize with one of the characters in Call of Cthulhu, for example. Again, that's not to say that you care for them. That there were characters in that. The narrator is probably his best character of all. I mean, it, it, but, which isn't saying much. Going back to what you were saying about King short fiction, I think part of it is because you know horror fiction as just as a whole works better in the short form because as a writer you can be cruel in a way that you can't really in the novel. Yeah, I haven't been cruel in any of my novels. But novels, you know, there, there are structural constraints that, that the novel as a field generally requires. Cultural direct constraints for a short story? Like, no, but, uh, <laughs> that's, but, but you, you don't need closure in the same way to have a successful short story that you do usually in the novel. And I think... I think you just said right there, do usually in the novel. That doesn't mean every time. There's so many different ways to write a novel. I just think it's a, a ludicrous statement. They're, they're two different art forms. I know, and one is good and one is bad. I get this. <laughs> this is not even vaguely. But that too, the love graphic wants to show stories. I, you know, it's funny, I was thinking about it before this panel, and, and I was shocked at actually how much Lovecraft, Lovecraft was overtly influencing his short work. Mm -hmm. And in sort of in different ways, there were times where he played with sort of the subtlety of, of weird fiction and with the sort of the unease, the dread, and stories like um, Anne or Mrs. Todd's shortcut or something like that. And then other times he just went all fucking tentacles. And it was like The Mist or um, uh, Crouch End mm -hmm. um, yeah. or Hobbs End. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and it, you can tell it's like, I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to have some tentacles come out of the ground and pull this dude down. And I, I would argue that, that his two maybe most Lovecraftian stories at the end of the day, and not, not just for like the aesthetics or anything, but just like the implications are, are the jaunt. Mm, yeah. Um, I am the doorway. Yes, and that was, that was going to be the other one, which I, which I think is, you know, maybe one of the best Lovecrafting stories of the late 20th century. And the fact that, like, we will never, we can't understand what is coming through him. He we, can't we understand can't. it, and he's in it. Right. He's which the, which he's story the is it for? I Am the Doorway. I don't remember that one. Uh, Astronaut comes back from space, and a couple years later, like, hands start appearing on his... Eyes, eyes on his hands. Eyes not hands on his hands, but eyes on his hands. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah it's, 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 it's a fascinating story because it's, you know, it's a night shift, so it's, it's really some of his earliest stuff. But e even then, he, he infuses that narrator with such fucking pain. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but also just, um, in a lot of ways, it's like an episode of The Outer Limits. Um, but, yeah, the mountain dread and the way that it will never stop. So is that like an evolution of some of Lovecraft's ideas, though? So Lovecraft obviously wrote about this, you know, yeah. the malevolent universe. So yes. sort of the next evolution is to, well, let's put people in it that we actually, if not care about, care about what happens to them. Yes. Really sort of... Yeah. Almost like emotionally bring home the fact that, hey, this universe is actually... A yeah, and also place. the idea that if you go up into space, you, 
you're going to come back with some kind of horrible disease um, because we live in an malevolent universe and you're literally hurling yourself into the void. And, and I, think, I think he managed to make the horror of the universe much more relatable than Lovecraft. And by doing so, I think, you know, his work is generally scarier, I think, than Lovecraft's. Lovecraft's, you know, we, we have this universe where nobody matters, but nothing matters. So at the end of the day, eh, it doesn't matter at all. But, well, but with, with, with King, like, well, it's we, have, we have a universe we can't understand, but we can understand each other, and then we watch each other be destroyed by this universe. I, I think Colorado Space, you know, is which is very comparable that's to his story. Yeah. Is, is his best story, and you, you do care about the family. You yeah. watch them struggle with dealing with this, and I, I mean, it's I wouldn't quite call them relatable, but it's the closest you can. <laughs> no, I, I I would actually I, I would, and it's you know it's 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 a working class farming family. It's it's one of the few times where you felt like a warmth from Lovecraft towards towards his characters, or in, in even the world, there's a sadness to what's happening yes. mm. that is absent from most of his work. I find the um, Wheelies very relatable. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that's me. Um, you know what, I, I, but I, I think a, a lot of people do, because I, I think the Waitleys and The Outsider, that those were the places where King, not King, where Lovecraft most put himself into. Like, I think the Waitleys, in a very real way, are, are emblematic of how outside he felt. Yeah, and also the Innsmouthians, the, the idea that, you know, something is going to happen to me genetically, I'm going to, you know, turn into something that I won't recognize. And, you know, the thing with Innsmouth that people often trip across, um, particularly when they feel like outsiders themselves, is... In Innsmouth, it doesn't seem so bad. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, a, a great test of character is how people feel about the end of that, of that story. Yeah. Do you feel it's terrifying or do you feel it's ecstatic? Uh, I feel that it is ecstatic um, and it reminds me a lot of... Um, what's, the, what's the one with the U-boat? Captain? The temple. The temple. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of the temple um, in that, you know, oh, and that guy's very definite. Extremely and, and definite. I, I honestly don't believe Lovecraft has any idea how optimistic the ending of Shadow of Innsmouth is. I don't think he did. I think he meant it as this great, this great final note of pessimism, yeah. but it's, it's not really because. Monsters are people too. Yeah, the, the, the narrator. The narrator isn't ending. He's just changing. He's well, the finances is actually really close to terror. I mean, that, that, that's. I mean. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, infinity studies that that tilts this way and that. You're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I mean, if if the divine exists and we're not terrified of it, what the fuck? Yeah. Right. Because I mean that 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 you know that that is the sublime, and you cannot have that awe without terror. I agree. Um, I'd love to hear from Victor. Oh, uh, about anything. No, I'm enjoying. Uh, <laughs> I'm enjoying being in the wash of all oh, this. Uh, it's uh, but I you know I think like. A, we talked about the Yankees beating the Dodgers yesterday. So. Uh, my, the most I know about baseball is that there are two teams called the Yankees and the Dodgers. Sadly, uh, uh, or not. But I, 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 I mean, I think um, the, the, the journey of, of this conversation seems like it's been, I feel like I've been enjoying just hearing the ways, um, and I'm honestly not sure where I fall, but we, it seemed like we began definitive that uh, Lovecraft has greatly influenced King, mm -hmm. and then for a while 
it became like, actually, I don't think he did at all. Uh, and now we seem to have returned to like, well, certainly some aspects, well, but he's improved. Let's on talk the about work for a second. And, no, no, I'm just saying that to say that uh, I feel like that that evolution, in a weird way, I don't know. I feel like it almost is tracking like maybe modern horror. Yeah. yeah. In a way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because I, th- I think these yeah. are the two names you you. For good or ill, you can't get away from which is where, where I was going to go to for your work. I mean, yes. there's the Lovecraft in, influence in mm-hmm. like Battle of Black Time, both in writing against his influence. What about King? How 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 much does the shadow of, of Stephen King weigh on your work? Oh well, I don't know. I mean, I I just looking at this panel, I, feel, I mean, it, it's an assumption in my mind that if you're over a certain age mm-hmm. uh, and you're I don't know from the earth. Uh, <laughs> And Stephen King had some kind of influence, right, on uh, yeah. on on uh, on the work. Uh, but you know, weirdly, like the the of all the things that uh, Stephen King, I mean, the myriad ways that I've loved him, devoured him, influenced by him, I still feel like the one time that the one image or moment that maybe most got into my skin from a Stephen King book was in um, uh, in Pet Cemetery. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the moment when uh, the dad, you know, the dad is going to the Micmac burial ground. Right. And uh, it's the moment when he's walking across, and this, I feel like it's a deadlights thing and a, almost a cosmic thing, but when he sees the Wendigo yes. in the path, and the Wendigo has those strobe light eyes that just sort of are moving <clears throat> like this. And I remember just being a kid, and uh, I'd read other Stephen King by that point, but. I don't think anything had scared me as much and, and, as and, that. And I think that image echoes back to Lovecraft. I do think so, yes. And, and the burial ground itself and that notion that, you know, there's some sort of God yeah. in the ground there that has made the ground bad. So. Yes. Yes, thank you. But also that it was, uh, I mean, what I thought was really powerful about it, though, is... Um, it's a beautiful moment, too. It's a beautiful moment, but also the, but the Wendigo, uh, the way he describes it with the eyes sort of shining this light, there was also the sense that it's just a god looking to harm. Like, it's yes. just a god out in the world, and whoever comes into its path yeah. will experience that, because he hides from the way he goes. Yeah, it's it's light, not right? malevolent, it's malevolence. Yes, yes. exactly. And yeah. I, 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 that was profoundly... Uh, if we're moving into the how did Stephen King influence you part of things for all of us, um, which is always great. But I like I, I really thought like that to me was the most evil Stephen King ever got. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, personally. because it's so indifferent. Yes, which is classic Lovecraft. Yeah, um, you know it appears to be malevolent, but it, perhaps it's just indifferent. But it's going to kill you anyway. Anyway, yes. <laughs> you know, um, <coughs> I, you know the other thing that that occurs to me and has been occurring to me throughout this panel is that, you know, when we try when we trace the um, the evolution of King's career, um, you know, the stuff that he wrote at the beginning of his career appears to be ostensibly looking at the novels more um, restorative horror, yes. you know, uh, and then as it gets a little further on, you start getting books, particularly like Revival, um, which are not restorative horror. Right. They're more like, hey, have you noticed shit's fucked up? Um, you know, because I'm just noticing that and it shakes me to the core. Yeah, I mean, Carrie and... and um Salem's Lot were such pessimistic novels. I mean, Salem's Lot is basically like, I fucking hate small town America and it should burn to the ground. Yeah. And it's just funny that like just a couple of books yeah. later, he's like, I fucking love small town America and we should all be small town America. Oh, so yeah. I think he, 
hates Salem's lot at all. I think I think I think he took the thing that he knows and loves and then attacked it. Yeah. And then found within his See, I, just, I, 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 I find it such a bitter novel. It is a bitter novel, but because it's not assholes as it's more like a main thing. I mean, it's sort of like, um, oh God, what's the novel that's named after the woman? Uh, Doris Claiborne? Yes. Yeah, uh, Dolores Cla Claiborne. Um, Dolores Claiborne, you know, nothing uh, supernatural is happening at all, but you know, it's just like, you know, the thing about Maine is we're all fucking assholes. But what's interesting, what's <laughs> you know? interesting about, that, about that is he uses a lot of similar language in that that he does in his supernatural work, and it's almost like, yeah. One, I think it's, it's, it's one of his most spiritual books, and two, it's like a supernatural horror novel where we just, the horror never shows up. Like, you know, it's just the horror of life. Well, that's just kind of malevolence. There's just kind of a malevolence in the ground. Right, but, it, but it's also kind of clearly in the same world that these terrible things happen to other people. Ah, okay, okay. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of that line uh, Springsteen has, Sir, I guess there's just a meanness in this world. Yep. You know, um, of loving people that you love with a love mean and true. You know, that people are essentially, people are assholes and the world is hard, but you know, we, that's how we survive it. I mean, and I, the I, things I, that we find become grace notes. And I, I think the notion that... The love that, that we find in ourselves becomes a the, note of grace. The notion that humans are essentially anything is kind of a cosmic horror in and of itself. Yes, yes, yes. The idea that you can't change, the idea that you will always revert to what you are, is, is, is an essential cosmic horror. Doesn't, doesn't he describe, because he's fascinated with the idea of a bad place, in quotes, right. in, in 11... One, two, 60, My favorite of his books, absolute favorite. Doesn't, doesn't, he, doesn't he talk about that there's some sort of almost like special badness in the town? It's been years since I read it, but I feel like it was one of those lines that leapt out that sort of connected this non-supernaturally part of the story to the rest of the world. In Dallas? No, no, not Dallas. Okay. Maine, when he's still in Maine. Okay, okay. Yes, yeah. What was it, Derry? Yes. Uh, well, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, there is some special badness in that town. I mean, 11.22, I think that's one of his, frankly, I've always found that to be the scariest of his books because of the sort of liberal in me, I guess, wanting to think that we can make the world a better place and to have it turn out that, no, you can't. <laughs> uh, and and, and, and th that's, I think, the point where his, where he reaches an almost Lovecraft level of pessimism about us and the universe. Um, you know, that, that idea that things can't change for the better, and that the more we try to change them for the better, the more we will fuck them up. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, you could say that as people get closer to death, they start thinking more about the structure of the universe. And, um, you know, I don't know, when they get hit by a fucking truck <laughs> left at the side of the road, possibly they start thinking more about the structure of the universe and, you know, is there something, is there something not, you know. Um, and again, because it's horror, it's like a resonance or an assonance that runs through things rather than, here it is, whoa! You know, uh, if it's good horror, <laughs> you know, if bad horror, it is, here it is, whoa, and it's covered in tentacles. Um, no, that sounds bad. That sounds like I'm shitting on my craft. I'm not. Um, but I, you know, here's what I'm thinking about. Um, one of the biggest things we talk about when we talk about Lovecraft is the idea of indescribability. You know, 
that there's something that you can't look at, there's something that you just can't see, you can't see the shape of it, you can see its influence, it's like a black hole, but you, you can't see the actual shape of it because it's so beyond your understanding. Oh gee, what does that sound like? <laughs> which, I, which I think he finally did perfectly in Color Out of Space. You yes. know, a color we can't see, we can't understand, we can only see what it has done. We can't see what it's doing, we can't see it's actually just what it has done, just the, the, what it has left in its wake. And again, it sounds like death. Let's, let's talk, maybe, you know, let's get to the, the uh, uh, bull in the china shop here about whether Stephen King's a good writer. And, um, you know, there's always been, I think, and maybe this is the right ground, maybe not, to say, um, well, he sells a lot of books, so he can't be a very good writer. Uh, Lovecraft was uh, obviously the antithesis of that. It was like, I'm going to show everybody that I'm a great writer because they're never going to sell a thing. <laughs> As one of the two meanest critics in the field, I, I go to bat for his writing every time. I think, I, I, you know, people, people talk about readability, but some of King's prose is beautiful. Yes. Is absolutely stunning. Yeah. Um, and he's a brilliant storyteller. Like, even the worst of King, he's still a brilliant storyteller. And there are moments in his work where those two come together unlike anybody except for maybe John Collier. And, and I, think it's a, I think it's a real fucking shame that the critical establishment shits on him so much because his work, the best of his work deserves to be read as the best of American literature. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, um, can you kind of throw out there just maybe more like, because, I, I mean, I think it would take a really long time. How do you figure out if someone's a good writer? You have to talk about what themes are present, you know, you know beyond just the, you know, Delivery what the prose style, et cetera. Because um, you mentioned it briefly, and then we, you know, great conversation, started talking about something else. But, you know, the shadow of Lovecraft and, and King. Right. Um, and I think there's, there's the influence side, which to me is fun, where you get to interact and recontextualize and get to play with it. <coughs> the only thing that I would say would be quote-unquote negative is sort of the anxiety part of it. I feel like one of the things of Lovecraft, I think that hurts some writers in our community. It has nothing to do with his work. It has to do with the how of his career. That yes. He's this really obscure writer, and that his friends that love to read his stuff basically held him up and gave him this form of immortality later. And I feel like, I almost feel like our vibrant small press, which you know puts out some of the best horror that's in existence. I feel like people that no, that's how it's supposed to work. I'm supposed to be a really obscure writer, and then hopefully when I'm gone, my friends will hold me up, and that's how I will be known. Which is at some point. What, 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 what a sad way to go through life. Well, there'll be a conference for us. On the other side, of it. <laughs> and then on the other side, so the, the anxiety side. Uh, on the other side of it is you know there's Stephen King, and how many times you hear the phrase, oh, this writer's the next Stephen King. There's never going to be a next Stephen King. Exactly. Stephen yes. King is the most published, most read <coughs> human in the history of the world. It, some things become very successful because they deserve it. Well, Not sure. often, but it, it just happens. But I mean, the notion that you know only horror readers are reading Stephen King. No, Stephen King readers read Stephen King. Ex exactly. Like, you know, I don't know what the percentage is. Yeah, you know, Stephen, Stephen King readers are, readers are the readers who don't read any other horror. Exactly. Yeah, not all of them, obviously. So I think those are sort of like the two shadows, like the idea that, oh, we have to anoint the next person, you know, the next whatever writer as the next TV. It's, 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 it's a revoltingly damaging concept to readers and writers. Especially newer writers. Like yes. Even I think it's also... Like the corollary of the next Stephen King is, oh, master of horror. Well, what does that mean? Like, you're well, a master uh, of horror. 
<laughs> but you hear it thrown around. I'm, I'm so going to get a little personal for a second. Yeah. Your, your career has had, has had I'm gonna, two stages. Um, and you got a lot of that critical buzz to begin with, and then your career didn't go as far as we had all hoped. <laughs> oh no! And and, and and but 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 but, 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 but people but did say people did say that about your work. They're like, oh, Paul Tremblay's going to be the, ne the next Stephen King, and now people are saying it again. So they like yes, and but so. I, I imagine when when writers hear this at this point, they they just must their teeth must fucking hurt from gritting so much. I, I, mean, I mean, it's very lovely. I mean, to be compared, like, you know, I'm very happy with what's going on with the books and how they're selling it and stuff like that. But exactly. you know, I almost feel like I'm bursting dreams at times. Like, well, you know, like they assume, like, because you know, they see my books in actual bookstores and they see Victor's books in actual bookstores. We both have a day job. Uh, like, we're not selling like Stephen King. No one does. Do you, no one does. Do you see a big shadow of King over your own work? What's that? Do you see a big shadow of King on your own work? No, I don't think there's a shadow at all, other than like what I described as, I think some of the things I used to worry about as a younger writer, but I feel like I, I figured that out. I feel like it's a little bit easier for me just to, to worry about doing the best you know, work that I can. Um, for me, I, I mean, I love the, I, I'm obsessed with influence. I love taking little bits of other stories and trying to put those things together. So to me, that, that's fun that those we have, even though I, I'm certainly not a Lovecraftian in any sense of the word, I still have, have taken some cosmic horror pieces. I love the idea of being able to use, use Kim, use Lovecraft, use Shirley Jackson. To me, that's, if you're gonna work in a genre, how, how, why would you not do that? Yeah. As a writer, you know, to be in conversation with these works that came before. Yeah. I think, you know, this is kind of the J.K. Rowling effect, too. I mean, I remember when oh, Jesus. books first came out. <laughs> no, 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 I, I, I agree with him. Out, and I'd see people on a bus or on a street corner reading, and I'd want to go over to them and say, you know, there are other books. <laughs> and, and everybody would be like, oh, but at least they're reading. They're going to go pick up everybody's yeah. books. They didn't. They didn't. They like didn't. Stephen King readers, they don't go sure and they buy did. everybody else's books. I'm not sure that that's a complaint. I well, think that yes, it did exactly. turn on. I think, really I think there is a segment of the readership that sure. discovered fantasy and said, oh, this is good. Is there more like this? I've run out of Harry Potter books. Sure, but nowhere near what they told us it was of, going to be. Of Stephen King, who went on to be fucking the horror writers. Right. Yeah. But I do think the, the J.K. Rowling effect is that there is less stigma attached to genre fiction than there used to be. It's not, like, certainly gone, but I do think the people that grew up reading J.K. are now maybe reading literary fiction <coughs> don't have like a stigma attached the, to genre the, that was there. The amount of mainstream genre. literary fiction that you can easily read as not just horror but supernatural horror is like it's never been before. So and 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 yeah, it is how much is King both to be thanked and blamed for that? I will say, I mean, speaking from um, the perspective of someone who teaches in a, a, a university in an MFA program. I do think, say, both J.K. Rowling and uh, Stephen King, I think they're seeing the students who come in at this point, the students don't, the students embrace those um, uh, influences. But I will say, I don't know that the academy sure. appreciates the embrace of those influences yet. Particularly, if you're talking about on the undergraduate level, I would say uh, the, 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 Pushback against that is twofold. One, like one is that uh, you know, like undergrad, you're taking some kind of like survey of American literature and blah blah blah, and there's it's largely literary realism that's going to be taught, and so that's the kind of shift that they also want in 
the writing workshops, those professors are teaching both courses sometimes. And so as a result, there's a sense of like, well, this, all this kind of fantasy stuff you read when you were a kid or this horror stuff you read as a kid, you know, you should put that away and start writing serious literature, which is the fault of the academy. But I will say the other side of that is that a lot of the things that the students are turning in when they're undergrads stinks. Yeah. Right? It's not good. Um, and it's not good because they haven't read that widely. They haven't read that much. They haven't read beyond J.K. Rowling and Stephen King. Right? Uh, and as a result, they're, they're, rather than being influenced, they are ripping off. Um, and so it would seem to me like the middle ground between those two would be able to be able to say, maybe that would be one of the places if there was a more open sort of academy to say, I see you've read Stephen King and you love Stephen King or J.K. Rowling. Let me introduce you to these five other people. I, I mean, yeah. even, at, at this then, point, you see you the know, academy, like, like you know, when you, when you bring up the fact that, like, Toni Morrison's beloved, it's a horror novel. Yes. It is a horror and they, they, Oh, my God, no. Like, yes. You can't call it that. Like, well, why can't you call Although it that? Although she, I, I got to say, she also, I always felt a little annoyed, like, she would never say... No, no, it's a ghost story. She would always say, right. is it a ghost? <laughs> you know, and you kind of like, oh, just but, say it's but, a ghost I mean, so we can teach this thing everywhere. I think, uh, yeah. I think you're being, I think pretty I think much you're sounds being like Margaret Atwood going, is it true. No, no, I, I think you're being impatient with academia because you have to keep the perspective that it wasn't until the 1970s true. that academics discovered Frankenstein. Yeah, um, that's true. Discovered Dracula, discovered Sherlock Holmes, and suddenly said, you know, there's actual literary value value to reading these things and studying them. So hopefully, let's see, yeah. 150 <laughs> years from now, people will be saying, okay, right, so about fair. that great master writer Stephen King. It's like human university. It's like that notion about how, how all the universities are just hotbeds of super like forward thinking, like social progressivism. It's like, no, actually go and sit down with some professors and you'll yeah. find out very much otherwise. Yeah, very much. And, and, but the, the, the flip side of that is we also recognize that there was a lot of trash published. Just because a book came out before 1900 doesn't mean it's a great book. True. There right. was a tremendous amount of trash being published back then, too. Yes. And I work around for, uh, because academia is not going to change rapidly, um, and to what Victor was saying is that, um, and I see it when I read articles about writing, I constantly see writers telling new writers to read outside of their preferred genre. Oh, you know, if you write horror, read crime, or read, you know, just historical drama, or read outside. And so it may be beholden to us and to everyone else who's writing to constantly be harping on that until, you know, the more uh, slow-moving academia can catch up. It's yeah. just a way to help influence the writer before they get the victim and he goes, oh my god. And I, I, I still, like, that, that, that notion that, that King's work has no literary value, as a critic, I find disgusting. Sit down, read Dolores Claiborne, read, read The Jaunt, read Bag of Bones. These are major works of American literature. Um, and yeah, it's going to be, well, I mean, I was going to say it's going to be like 100 years before they know that, but we don't have that long. 50 more. Well, uh, or do we have that long? Or until my annotator comes out. So That's I'm glad to, hear that, <laughs> glad to hear you guys think I'm not wasting my time. No, I, I, I actually, like, like, like that, that, that heartens me to see, you know, to, to see his work starting to be taken seriously on a critical level. Because I think, I think part of the reason it hasn't been is, is King has always regardless of his, his personal financial position over the past few decades, he has always written working class literature. Yeah. 
and he's written working, la working class literature that sells to the literate working class. And I think when the, when the academy and the critical establishment ignores that, it is largely because, speaking on behalf of critics, we tend to hate the working class. We don't believe that the working class literature has value until somebody's dead. Raymond Carver's great because he's dead. And I, 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 it's ingrained. I mean, it's. I mean, not to blame, but I mean, the pulps were, you know, for, <coughs> you know, people coming out of factories. That's what, literally what they were for. The right. And the serious fiction was written by the serious people, the quote unquote people. The serious people were the ones who could afford to go to universities. You know, this is obviously the 20s and 30s. And then who's the next round of academics? Most of them. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the pulps were for the working class. Right. The so novel I, was I for the middle class. For me. I, you know, obviously there's a bunch of reasons why, you know, genre, all sorts of genres are looked down upon, but I do think that a huge component of it, maybe even a driving component of it, is still class. I agree, I agree. I, th I think a lot of American disdain for, for horror literature, and yes, literature, it's a valid form of goddamn literature, is classism. We see it as, you know, just shitty entertainment for stupid, for the stupid pores. And it's, it's grotesque, and I think there are a lot of writers now that are, I mean, come on, you can't look at John Langan's work and say, like, this is not serious literature. You can't look at Victor's work or your work or Gemma's or John's and say, this is not serious literature. It is, and furthermore, it's serious literature about the human condition that a lot of Jonathan Safran Foer doesn't know fucking shit about actual people. But we we but we're told that this I love his essays by the way. Let's um, agree on that. But 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 we're told that, that you know this is the literature that matters. Jonathan Franzen is the literature that matters. It's not. It's not. I mean, I you you could learn more like if you could give a reader who's never been to America a book to understand what domestic life is in America, give them a fucking head full of ghosts. Give them Dolores Claiborne. You know, it's but this is this is the way it is. I mean, it, it, go back to who cares who killed Roger Ackroyd, you know, Edmund Wilson. And this is the way it evolves, and it takes a while. Be patient. Yeah, we don't want to be patient. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, and and, and and I don't think we should be. I think we should be angry with that. I think I think as readers, as writers, as well, yeah, critics, us, as editors, but, you know. No, I think everybody everybody sitting out here should be angry with that. Everybody everybody here who has come to see this panel should be angry about the fact that the literature, the very valuable literature that they love, is looked down upon by the critical and academic establishment. Let's trash the place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, the core of King, like the core of all good writing, is personal Oh, that's right, this is about King, isn't it? Yeah, is, 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 is personal experience, and to me that is the core of horror. <laughs> You know, uh, that's the thing that I've found most useful in my own evolution, is not denigrating my own experiences and going, oh, nobody's going to give a shit about that. You know, it's like, no, everyone's going to give a shit about that. That's the only thing anybody's going to give a shit about. And, and I feel like one of the, situ one of the things that, that King wrote against Lovecraft, as far as influence goes, is, is that sort of depth of character. The idea that we can understand the interiority of another. Yes. Um, Yes, goddammit. <laughs> we can. Bracken? Well, I'm, I'm intrigued by, by the conversation you just heard about Michael Tinker or Beth. Whether you feel that class 
is the dividing line that separates King from Lovecraft. Lovecraft's views on class and immigration are wholly different than King's views on middle and working class people. And, and is this a point of friction between authors instead of, uh, instead of I would say yes. I would definitely say yes. I, I think it comes back to the relatability thing. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, if you're a working class reader, I, I guess there are such people, uh, then um, why would you want to read Lovecraft? You know? It's... And, and I think, uh, even though he, he Lovecraft dealt with things that seem to function on the notion of interiority, like, like you know, gibbering madness and stuff like that. I don't think, he, I think he's a man who never understood his own interiority, whereas I think King always has to a, to a degree that, Lovecraft's inability to understand his own interiority caused him a great deal of pain. Yes. King's ability to understand his own interiority caused him a great deal of pain. So they, they both kind of write from this opposite place of interiority and meet in the middle, I think. Um, I, I think there's also a lot to be said about the, uh, the sort of disparity between um, Lovecraft's physical life and, you know, like eating out of cans and essentially starving himself and, you know, go, not going out and meeting no one and getting more and more... Um, you know, sort of like a hoarder uh, by the end of his life. Um, you know, and, and you know, it's like, oh, I don't want to go to Providence, be, even though I love Providence, because there's just too many people there. Yeah. You know, um, and meanwhile, inside his mind, all the people that he's writing about are people who are literally seeing the secret machinations of the universe. They're seeing how the world rips open, and behind it is stuff that is so huge and so inexplicable, literally inexplicable, that, you know, uh, that it's a kind of, um, it's, kind of, it's kind of like living like a saint. Did he, do you think he wrote from a point of envy of the characters? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I think that, you know, I mean, he was an autodidact and he was an antiquarian and, you know, but, but he wasn't a dude who'd gone to university. He wasn't a guy who had academic cred. He wasn't a guy who was anything except someone who lived in the same house his entire life, and, 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 um, except for one time when he went to New York and hated it. And I, th I think it's fascinating that he was an autodidact, but he was not well-educated. His, his fields of interest were so narrow very that he would teach himself everything about like these very narrow fields of interest that nobody else would be like, oh, okay, that's yeah. cool. Why is Howard here? Yeah, well, uh, well you know, gee, gee, I wonder what that sounds like again. Um, you know, uh, speaking as uh, the mother of, of an autistic son who, uh, who believes that she would have gotten an Asperger's diagnosis had people been looking for that when I was uh, the right age. Um, you know, he was passionate about very specific things and everything else. You know, he had that Sherlock Holmes thing going on where it's like, doesn't matter if we go around the sun or whether we go around the earth or whether the sun goes around us, I don't give a shit. But, you know, um, but at the same time, I think he wanted to give a shit. I think he felt bad that he didn't give a shit. And, you know, so all of the people that he's writing about are well-read people, they're stable people, they're rich people, they're middle-class people, they're people, the old stock of Providence, they're the old stock of, you know, New England, and, you know, and, and he, and he, yeah,
yes, he seems like he loves these people because they're the people he's inflicting well, things yeah. on. Yeah, I mean, he's raised, <laughs> he's raised to be somebody indolent. I mean, this guy never held a job, basically. And he couldn't relate to people who had to go get jobs. What, he didn't want a job. He turned down what, what it seemed to was, be a Was that indolence or was that anxiety, though? I mean, you know. No, I think it had to do with his self-image as a gentleman. Gentlemen don't work. Gentlemen don't move. Well, and that, stay in one place. And live in the family. family. Well, and, yeah, exactly. That, that, that's that's the funny. That, that that's the funny thing. I mean, Lovecraft was somebody who always saw himself as this noble gentleman. Yeah. E- even when he was just dirt fucking poor in Kansas, and, and King has always kind of seen seen himself as you know a teamster. This, 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 work, this, this working class guy, who, that's where all of his values come from. Even though he's rich as shit at this point. As we talk about class and, and who reads and are there working class readers and such, one thing that's interesting to point out is if you think of the television, it's sort of, you know, it's that Obie for the masses type thing. And as my dad told me growing up, it's just going to make you stupid kid. I, I don't even own a TV. <laughs> still competes with all those people. He doesn't write highfalutin stories and all that. He writes working man's stories and then uses those characters. He kicks ass and takes names and fights in spite of all the comedians out there. And I'm just thinking of non-scientific selection. People I know in my own life might qualify as sort of terribly well-educated, um, you know, didn't go to college or whatever. And you know what? If they read two books, they're probably Stephen King books. Yeah. In fact, I'm thinking of someone yeah. right now who's a cop who's read two Stephen King books. And I don't know any other novels. <coughs> yeah. And, and I think that's okay because it's great. This is excellent. You know, again, we tend to be like, oh, Stephen King is just popular entertainment. He is popular entertainment and actual literature. And I can think of few writers in history who have been able to combine those two things the way he has. Maybe. When, when I was a critic. <laughs> When I was a film critic, um, I had a reputation in Toronto as being the one person who you could send to a horror film who would like, who would probably like it, and if she didn't like it, she would talk about it uh, as though it was something that was that was worth discussing why it worked or why it didn't work. Um, and you know, and I had a friend who um, turned to me at one point and said, "Oh, Jenny, become such a populist." And I'm like, you know, I'm not entirely sure what's wrong with that because that means of people. Is that is that it? You like stuff that people like? Is that, I mean, I like to think that I'm a person. I think a good critic needs to be, a good critic needs to be a populist to some degree. Yes. Yeah. That's what I always loved about Reader. Yes. That he was. Um, he would take everything and look at it as though it deserved to be there. But you know, I do want to give one thing. I do want to give Lovecraft credit for in in all this. I do think um, King speaks to the average person much more and writes to that class. But I also feel like when you read his work, you can feel how much he yearns for that. Yes, he wants to please people. He's the one who wants to fill the crowd, fill the theater, and make everybody go home happy. Definitely. And to Lovecraft's credit, I think. On some level, he reached who he wanted to reach, and fuck everybody else. I, I think, and I respect that on some level of like, I, I am an elite. These are not things that most of you sort of creatures of dirt and mud will understand. And I'm gonna just die. I'll be unhappy that I did, but I wrote exactly the thing I want to. I do think um, um, sometimes when talking with uh, younger writers, right, like the 
the secret, maybe not always clearly stated wish is I'm going to write exactly what I want to write. Yeah. But I want the world, and I don't care what the world thinks, but I want the world to love me the way they love people who work to be loved. And I think Lovecraft, for whatever ways that I have issues with him, and there are lots of issues to have, that dude is who he was from the beginning to the end of his writing life. And there's some part of me that respects somebody who just says, fuck you, and I don't want your money. I do like that. It's, it's yeah. also kind of fascinating to look at the amount of Lovecraft readers that go on to become writers. Yeah, yeah. that's well, right. I think, I think a lot of us, maybe, maybe this is too self-revelatory, you know, would like to think that that's the way we, we are living our lives, to say, I'm going to be true yeah. to myself. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what people think, and um, they wonder why I don't practice law full-time <laughs> instead of doing silly books. You know? You're practicing okay. law? <laughs> So we're about, I'm going to open up to uh, some questions, but for, for, first a quick show of hands. How many of you in here consider yourself writers? Keep your hand up if you see yourself as influenced in Lovecraft, by Lovecraft some way. Now keep them up still if you see yourself as influenced by King in some way. Now here's, here's the question for everybody to think about. The Lovecraft influence is generally obvious, but is the King influence? I mean, it was the same hands. But I want to ask a question. How many of you all think of yourselves as readers? All right, I just wanted to make sure everybody got a chance to put their hand up. <laughs> all right, questions for anybody but Paul. <laughs> Shout if you can. I can't uh, this uh, panel. Two things. Uh, first, Color Out of Space is mentioned, but Stephen King's on record to say Tommy Runkers was attempted to write the Color Out of Space. His version wasn't very good because he was all fucked up. But here's the thing there are some absolutely beautiful moments in that yeah, book. It's true. Yeah. The whole thing is a goddamn failure as a whole, but there are so many just beautiful points to it. Yeah. Uh, two, swap. I'm not going to say this, but uh, Stephen King has broke uh, a prestige of Lovecraft, Jerusalem's Law. Yes, absolutely. I was one of his first, like, he wrote when he was like 18 or 19. Yeah, yeah. He's actually sort of embarrassed by it now. Yeah. Which is kind of cool, like, sort of like we all like look back at older. Right, and the, the reason why I didn't bring it up is because it was pasty. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, it's just fun. We just, you know, you kind of mentioned Shut Mel in there and it's really fun. Then the last thing, the most important thing to think about is King came to Lovecraft yeah I mean at the end of the day taking King's work as like, like as a whole, we will survive and we will win. As a whole, even though that's absent in, in a lot of individual works, um, yeah, the, the monster can eventually be beat, even if it's not us, even if it's like three generations from now. Um, and that's a notion that's entirely absent from Lovecraft. Um. Uh, three things, and the first thing that um, not that. Um, when you said that it's not actually in science, I did wonder why you guys didn't talk about like, the time numbers or all the adult, because I think also there's like this, um, that 
Like we're under the moment of you know, you mm-hmm. don't understand it. I, 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 would, I wouldn't even say that they're malevolent and under the dome. They're just children. It's a kid yeah, playing with it's, 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 it's Patrick Hockstetter from It pulling the wings off of flies. Yeah. But it, it, it's still, like, there's still nice kids that don't need us. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Are they? Yes. They're buried a goldfish. Yeah. No, it doesn't. Well, you know, there is this level of, like, if you survive, you have to prove yourself as, as a worthy human being to survive it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you think about that, it all goes back to, like, his anxiety and dealing with his addiction, like, the shining being about him, hurting one of his kids, and then he writes about it. Yeah. Who's yeah. worried, you know, him worrying about what was, you know, yeah. whether he's not going to be around, and he's, he's working on these anxieties, which is true, and then those are the two things that he also has person without thinking like they understand the world in a way that I can't. It's just no, yeah, I, you can't. I, that, I that, absolutely that. agree. I, I absolutely agree. I'm I'm just gonna say one thing, which is that you know we all write from inside our own circle because if we're looking for that personal experience, it's our experience. Um, and the problem is that when the default lies in a certain place, um, it's, it's difficult to switch that up. Um, but, but, but what I will say is that one thing that I appreciate about, uh, about King's later work is that he appears to be trying, and in at least one case, um, succeeding for me, 
to mirror my own experience, um, uh, certainly in the outsider uh, and yeah, the, the and the Mr. Mercedes series with uh, the character of Holly. And, and I mean, he, he no Holly's longer great. he yeah. no longer writes queer figures as just like you know mincing sissies. Which is yeah, exactly. But but yeah, I think I think there's a similar problem, a very similar problem with King and Lovecraft of, of that difficulty of of exploring the other to them. I think they, they both, you know, love, King is a little more gentle in that. Um, but yeah, I mean, Stephen King is a white writer from the 20th century. There's a shit ton of racism in his work. There's, a, you know, some really terrible portrayals of, of, of queer folks. And, and again, his really weird hatred for fat people, which I'll never really understand. Um, <laughs> No, you're you're absolutely right. There is a huge problem with King writing the other. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 worth a far longer discussion than than, than we have time for, and we would have had time for this whole panel. Yeah, seriously. So you are 100 percent correct. Yeah. Um, it's like, but 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 he's not Lovecraft. <laughs> well, I, I, I think <laughs> it's like if you're gonna have a showdown, it's like I mean, okay, like like who's more woke? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna speak on behalf of people of color, but you know, as a queer person, I'd rather a writer write poorly about me and not fucking hate me and want me dead. And I, I think, I think you know, there, there, there is a, a, a distinction between Lovecraft's racism and King's racism that is important, but is it just a matter of degree, is what it all comes down to. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's sort of, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm Canadian. Uh, that's sort of very American impulse. It's like, we're, we're going to bring in everybody because that's the American way, you know, even if I don't actually understand how to write about everybody. Yeah, and I think at the end... Canadian. Yeah, at, 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 the end, at the end of the day, I wish an editor of Kings would just be like, you know what, just make that dude a, a white guy and leave it at that because you're doing this badly. But no one's going to, no editor's going to tell King that. They're going to be like, uh, whatever you say, yes, put this on the press. Let's just, yeah. right? I mean, why, why would, uh, just speaking purely on a commercial level, why but, would you? You know, an, another key difference is, is to do some of Lovecraft's worst racism came towards the end of his life. Sure. Whereas King has, you know, like any good white American liberal has tried. He's trying here and I, there. I, I think he has largely failed, but gently. Um, but he is trying. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, so thank you all for coming. Um, <laughs> and, and, and a special thank you to Nicholas Kaufman, everybody. Hey everybody, before we wrap up this episode, I'd like to take a minute to say thank you for tuning in. We hope you're enjoying the podcast from our interviews and actual plays to our rambling roundtable discussions. If you like what you're here and you'd like to support the show, we have great sponsors for you to check out. Birds of a Feather Coffee Company is a small batch craft coffee roaster and is our OG sponsor. There are three signature blends to choose from. The Morning Lark, which is a light roast, the Night Owl Blend, which is a rich, dark roast, and the Hummingbird Decaf Blend. 
They also have the exclusive legendary brew, a nice medium roast coffee, perfect fuel for all those late night gaming sessions. If you use the code LEGENDS10, you'll get 10% off your order and shipping is always free. So head on over to tinyurl.com forward slash legendary brew or click on the link in the show notes. Thanks everybody for checking it out. We'll catch you next time. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.